0: Another episode of Wings for Breakfast. I'm Max Boltman. With me, as always, is Prashant Swaggy P. Iyer, and we have got a whopper of an episode today. It is trade deadline day. The Red Wings were extremely active, starting at just after midnight, trading Mike Green to the Edmonton Oilers, and then about 12 hours later, trading Andreas Athanasiou to the same team. So Ken Holland, loading up the Oilers for a playoff run with guys from his old team. We got a ton to talk about, but where do you start on something like this?
1: Well, I think first and foremost, I'm really happy that, like, from from a Red Wing standpoint, Steve Eiserman is not the quintessential, like, Swaggy P meme where you basically see Swaggy P shoot that shot, he turns around and holds up the three sign, and then the, the ball rims out. So, thankfully, none of that really happened with Steve Eiserman today. I mean, I think when you're taking the 10,000-foot view here, you're just going, okay, he had a couple of pieces he needed to move. He had a couple of pieces that were going to garner some interest across the league. And he basically moved them for what I think is market value. And so I think at the end of the day, you may say, all right, there's a lot of higher prices paid and you had certainly some, some deals that didn't make a whole lot of sense uh, looking at you, Barclay Goodrow. But, uh, beyond that, I think at the end of the day, you have to be satisfied that he, he got at least near market value.
0: Yep. I think that the, you know, Barclay Goodrow, a late addition into this category, but especially some of the early forward deals might've kind of uh, raised expectations a little bit for what Iserman was going to be able to get for ethnicity. At the end of the day though, um I, you know, you get the sense that they were happy with that return. I mean, Iserman said in his press conference today, he did want to get a first round pick as if any GM ever has to say that. Um, but instead he gets two seconds and, and ultimately, the real two takeaways I have are, number one, uh, whatever their vision for the, kind of the arc and the future of this team is, uh, Andreas Athenasiou probably wasn't at the very center of it. That doesn't mean they couldn't have imagined a world in which he's part of it, I, you know, but, uh, you know, based on what Steve Eiserman said today, it, it sounds like, you know, is a situation where they, if they were comfortable with two second round picks, I can't imagine he was central to uh, the blueprint going forward.
1: Yeah, and it's something that you and I have talked about, I think, on a handful of episodes in that, you know, as good as Athanasio is, as as talented as he is, at the end of the day, he wasn't that player that I think was going to be successful in Detroit. I think he had really two polar opposites to his game in a sense, where he was a highly talented, highly skilled offensive forward that was often doomed to playing with, you know some guys who maybe weren't at his skill level didn't think the game the same way as him and on on the flip side of the things he didn't he didn't necessarily always have the best defensive results and and on a team like Detroit that's just really struggling to one put the puck in the net but two keep the puck out of their own net. I don't know that he was ever set up for success and I don't know that Detroit's really going to be set up to, to maximize a guy like him down the road. And so I think what Iserman had to do was rightfully identify that early on and then, and then ultimately take the best deal he possibly could. And, and two second round picks from Edmonton, I know a couple of people, uh, you know, have kind of privately mentioned to me and publicly mentioned to me that that seems a little bit down relative to what everyone else got, but I, Don't underestimate the variance with that 2021 second round pick is, is what I'll say here. Edmonton has been up and down for years. Uh, there is no guarantee that 2021 second round pick sits, you know, in the, in the bottom half of that, uh, in the bottom half of that round. I mean, in all likelihood, it could be as high as 40. So I think there's more to come in terms of how well this plays out. But I think at the end of the day, Iserman... Did what he had to do with respect to moving Athena Yeah,
0: and, and, you know, he, he talked at length, uh, Monday afternoon when he met the media about, you know, the, the amount of, you know, re- when you, re- when you rely on the draft like that, you just want to increase your odds as much as you can and get as many picks as you can. You don't know who the players are. You don't know how long they're going to take. Uh, but, you know, if, if you're, if you're rebuilding, you're going to have to get something, you're going to have to give something up in order to get the kind of picks that are going to make you better three, four, five years down the road. It's kind of interesting. That was, the, the numbers that he used, uh maybe a little bit of a window into when he thinks the Red Wings will be competitive, in which case you have to agree with the decision to move Athanasiu because in three, four, five years, he's going to be, what, 28, 29,
1: 30. Yeah, exactly. And and again, he he was a, not a player that was evolving anymore. At, at 25 years of age, you, you know what you had in him and you know either, can I make him successful here or... Is he a guy that I'm gonna to have to move because I just don't know that I can maximize his talent? And I I keep coming back to that and and, and that's a thing that's been consistent around the league. There are there is certainly value in players that can do what Athanasiu can do. I mean, I personally am very excited to see what he can do next to Connor McDavid. The two of those guys flying down the ice, I don't envy any but any defenseman trying to defend that tandem coming up the ice. And so I think you're really gonna to get to see a team that can you know, unleash Athanasiu's skill set a little bit more than what Detroit could. But at the pace that Detroit needs to rebuild that, and, and really, it's a pace they can't accelerate any faster than that. You just were not going to get maximum value from a guy like Athanasiu, and so you're better off taking the high, higher draft picks and and kind of pushing your timeline back. I think that's what those second round picks do. You know, if we look at most second round picks, they they typically take. You know, somewhere from three to four years post-draft to, to really hit the NHL and quote unquote make it. Meaning, you know, they're playing maybe more than half the season. And so by Eiserman thinking that he needs at least three to four years, uh, to, to get this rebuild fully done, those second round picks now fit that timeline. Uh, those guys are hitting the NHL on their entry level contracts. Uh, when the wings are gonna be needing those cheaper bottom six players or, or bottom pairing defensemen and, and that's the situation you wanna be in. And so what, what a deal like this does really is it helps reset the timeline and helps kinda of line things up based on what Iserman's long-term vision is.
0: What I do find interesting on that note <clears throat> is that, uh, Athenasiou could very easily go off in Edmonton. I mean, I, he's got 10 goals on the season somehow, just largely a shooting percentage driven, partly due to injuries. It wouldn't stun me that much if he does that in the 20 games Edmonton has left in this season.
1: Yeah, I mean, to be quite honest, I think you cannot evaluate this deal by what he does in Edmonton. And and again, that's coming back to Edmonton's a team that's better suited to maximize Athenasiou's skill set. Uh, compared to Detroit. I mean, Athanasiu is likely gonna slot in on the top line right next to Connor McDavid. There's nobody, there's nobody in Detroit, there's nobody in the NHL that you can, you can say, oh yeah, here's a guy comparable to Connor McDavid, go have fun and play. Uh, Athenasiou doesn't have that. And so I think, uh, you know, you can't judge this deal by what he does in Edmonton because Detroit was never going to get that version of Athanasiu because simply put, they don't have Connor McDavid and they weren't going to get Connor McDavid and they weren't going to get a player anywhere near Connor McDavid. Uh, so I think with that being said, I'm not, I'm not going to be shocked if Athanasiu goes off for eight or ten goals in the final part of the season and he may even sniff twenty goals on the year. Uh, and that's okay because Detroit ultimately had to do what they, what needed to be done, which was reset their timeline and kind of align it with the long-term vision here.
0: My question is, when when we think about kind of the quote-unquote reset timeline, does that have any other kind of ripple implications we should be reading into at this point?
1: I think yes and no. I mean, honestly, it does, it does help set the stage for what free agency is going to look like. Uh, Anybody hoping that the Red Wings are going to come in and make a splash in free agency given that they're going to have, you know, close to 40 million dollars in cap space, uh, you know, don't think that's the case. I think Eiserman is very clearly saying, I've got a vision for three to four years from now and my goal is to add players that are going to fit in that timeline and to move guys out that don't fit. And that's exactly what you saw at this trade deadline. That's exactly what you've seen from him all season. He's taken flyers on guys that are in that 22, 23 year old range to see what they look like, to see if they're potential pieces for the future. Guys like Adam Ernie, Brendan Perlini, Robbie Fabry, now Dmitry Timisoft. He's, he's taken those flyers to see, can I find these potential pieces, uh, that are gonna be valuable players in three, four years? Uh, he's looking at the right age bracket. He's moving out the guys that he doesn't see as a part of that long-term vision, moving out a guy like Athanasiou, getting value for a guy like Mike Green, who is coming up on the end of his contract and was likely not going to be re-signed. He did what he could to, to put it on that. And so I think the big... kind of omen for the offseason is don't expect Iserman to go out and chase the Alex Petrangelo, the Tory Krugs, the big name free agents. Expect him to lock up his guys and keep that cap space available as uh, potentially an asset to take on another bad contract. Because uh, certainly you'll see some teams wanting to offload guys uh, depending on the moves made this summer. And you know, other teams have been successful with that in the past. Carolina was successful last season, uh, taking Patrick Marlowe from the Leafs, uh, and they were able to net a first round pick, which then ultimately allowed them to be more flexible with their own first round pick this year and actually acquire Brady Shea from the New York Rangers. So that's my expectation for Eiserman is don't expect him to go out and make the big splash. Don't expect him to try and accelerate this thing too quickly. Look for moves that are going to align with that 3 to 4 year uh time frame.
0: I also thought it was interesting he said he hadn't, you know, had any conversations quite yet with any of the pending restricted free agents, something he would consider now that the trade deadline's over, but he also said he's very comfortable uh just waiting until the summer on on all of those guys.
1: Yeah, and that's, that's again, I think, a, an interesting statement because, you know, with, with some of these guys here, uh, the restricted free agents that, that Detroit's gonna have to negotiate with this offseason, there's a lot of names they're gonna go with. I mean, obviously Anthony Mantha is the big one, um, but Tyler Mattuzzi, uh, you know, Brendan Perlini, Robbie Fabry, now adding Dmitry Timashov as well, there, he's another guy that you're gonna have to think about. Is he a long-term piece? uh for the Red Wings and to see a guy I'm gonna to need to negotiate with. So I think that's fine because again it it, it really sounds like the priority for Eiserman is is not chasing any of these other names. His sole priority this offseason is going to be discerning which of these restricted free agents he wants to bring back, doing the negotiating with them. And and that's gonna be his plan. And and I'm I'm more than comfortable with that being the sole focus of this offseason because as you and I have talked about, teams get themselves into trouble when they think they're ahead of schedule. And and I I like to say this: if if you think you're if you're if you're unsure if you're ready to make that splash, then you're not ready to make that splash. But you're gonna know when you're ready to go out and start chasing those bigger names and chasing those free agents uh, based on your roster structure. And and Iserman knows right now his team's not at that point.
0: I think that's a really fair point to make. I mean, I think you know, especially early in this season and, and into the in, in the preseason, you, you and I had talked a lot about you know the the pending UFA class and what might be out there. I, I think your point's very good that if we're talking three, four, five years down the road already here in February, then when July comes around, uh probably safe to assume that you know any deal that's uh, on, a, on a guy who's you know twenty seven, twenty years old is is probably going to be a, a tougher sell.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think at at best you're going you may expect Eiserman to add one or two guys out of free agency. Those contracts are going to be for less than 2 years. Uh so at most it'll be a, a Patrick Nemeth type contract to bring in a guy who's, you know, in his late 20s, uh who can give you a couple of years at a low cost and potentially next season you're you're talking about moving guys like that. So I think you may see Eiserman make a move or two like that. Um but I fully expect him to take uh you know this off season and just entirely devoted to the restricted free agents, and I really think that's the right way to go. And 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 for the people and the fans who are going to ask, well, why does it have to be three years? Why does it have to be four years? You know, if the Wings win the lottery, you get Alexi Lafreniere, and and all of a sudden you're 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 back in business. It, it's not as simple as that. Detroit is so devoid of of elite talent right now. That they're, they're really hurting. They're having an historically awful season. This is not something that one player is going to fix. This is not something that two players is going to fix. And, and the key to the rebuild, the word that I, that I haven't really seen thrown out a lot. What you want to do is you want to rebuild such that you are built to be sustainable. Uh, you don't want to pull an Edmonton, go out, and throw big money at Milan Lucic in in 2016 when you're absolutely, um, you know, not ready to make a deal like that. You're not ready to compete and contend, and you shouldn't be throwing out these six-year or five-year contracts uh, for five or six million dollars. That's that's not sustainable. That's getting ahead of the game here. What you want to do is you want to be a team that every year maintains cap flexibility has young guys coming in on entry-level contracts to fill out the bottom part of your roster, and you have the ability to go chase free agents. Uh, it's very early in the rebuild, but I, I'm going to do this because I always do this. you got to look at what Carolina's doing. You look at the way they've done it the last couple of years. They're maintaining their flexibility with their roster such that they can be competitive and they can be buyers at the deadline because they've got the cap space. They have the ability to negotiate. I mean, what other team could have gone out and on trade deadline day, come away with arguably the top two defenseman targets and Brady Shea and Sammy Vatanen and then come away with arguably one of the best players moved on the deadline day and Vincent Trocek. So, you know, you want to have a model like that. And, and I think that's why you're going to take three to four years to really get all the pieces in place.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I'm curious to you when, when you kind of look at, uh, at the full body of the moves today around the league uh was there any move that you were particular I don't know I guess what what's the word envious of was were there moves that you were real envious of any moves that you were real glad that uh that you weren't the GM making
1: Yeah I mean that's a that's a great question I think the move that really struck me the most was uh you know being in Carolina's position being able to get a guy like Vincent Trocheck and then with Carolina having injuries to Dougie Hamilton and Brett Pesci being able to go out and get Sammy Vatanen and Brady Shea to basically replace those guys. And look out if Carolina makes the playoffs and, and both Hamilton and Pesci are able to come back. I mean, you are talking about an absolutely loaded defensive core down there. And I think Carolina did all of that without having to make any significant overpays. I think the deal that really stood out to me was the Trocheck deal where, Carolina kind of gave up a couple of their mid-tier prospects and a and a couple of uh, other picks that weren't first rounders and, and ultimately walk away with what I consider to be the best player that moved on the deadline day. So I think that was a really good deal. I think the deal that you know I would be very surprised at, at this one working out well was you know the the San Jose Sharks, um, you know, I guess getting. A first round pick for Barclay Goodrow. Um, you know, that's, that's fascinating. I, I, Tampa's obviously in a position to be buyers. They're in a position to, to, you know, throw their first round picks out if they need to. But Barclay Goodrow, man, that is, that's a steep price to pay for a player like that. So I, I'm curious to see if, if it works out for Tampa. They're obviously going, all out for it here, but that's, that's one that certainly leaves my head scratching. And then I think from a Red Wings standpoint, a deal that was made that I think the Wings could have made or considered making was what Toronto did by interjecting themselves in the Robin Leonard deal here. Where Toronto, what they basically did is, is Vegas needed a goaltender. They needed Robin Leonard. They just didn't have the cap space to do it. So Vegas essentially paid Toronto a fifth round pick to just retain some cap on Robin Leonard before moving him over to Vegas at a cap it that they could basically take him at. I think that's a deal where, again, if you're real savvy with the salary cap, you're maybe able to make a a move like that and get yourself a, another pick. I think that's, that's a deal that, you know, in my mind, the wings should and could consider making. Um, all that being said that that certainly wasn't a you know a huge huge deal or a huge net gain for Toronto but that's something that Detroit can kind of think about in terms of uh finding ways to
0: add additional assets. No one has ever doubted Kyle Dubas's ability to do math. Uh the deal I thought was really <laughs> a surprising one was the J.G. Paggio deal, obviously a first, second, third. They basically get the Thomas Tatar deal. It's the Thomas
1: Tatar price.
0: But for a pure rental. Now they of course extend him immediately. So maybe maybe argued, you know, if if they knew that was in place then it made a little bit more sense, but uh wow, what a haul. I think Ottawa are some of the big winners today.
1: Yeah, Ottawa is now sitting real real pretty at the this year's draft. I mean, they've got three first-round picks. They conceivably have two of those in the lottery and in the top part of the lottery. And so you're potentially looking at Ottawa having a chance at getting the first and second overall pick and then still having another pick in the in the first round in what most consider to be quite a loaded first round this year. So Ottawa's in in prime position to do a lot of damage. In the near future, I think they did a really nice job uh, at this year's deadline, and I think the other team that I I have to say also did a really nice job at the deadline. Chris, you can uh, you can cover your ears here, but I have to say Montreal did a really nice job as well, being able to take a guy like Kovalchuk, turn him into assets, take Marco Scandella, turn him into assets, being able to get something for Matthew Pekka, uh out of Ottawa. I think they did a really nice job of getting a lot of picks. Um, They got a 2021 fifth for Nate Thompson, which again is a huge, huge uh, win for them. Nate Thompson has not been a serviceable NHLer for, for quite some time. So you look at Montreal, and I mean, they've got their first rounder this year, but three in the second round, three in the fourth round, two in the fifth round, two in the seventh round. They are absolutely loaded. I think they've got 13 picks on this year's draft, which is absolutely insane, and, and of course the draft's in Montreal, so you may be able to see them use some of those picks to, to move up in the draft to take, uh, guys they highly covet, so. I think those are two big winners and unfortunately both of those teams are in Detroit's division, so it's certainly not gonna get any easier moving forward.
0: No, it's not, and I think, you know, it 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 underlines all the more how important it's gonna be for the Red Wings to get a good uh bounce in the lottery. I mean, certainly, you know, you can never really count on getting the first overall pick, but here's what I'll say. Whatever their pick is, it needs to be their first pick needs to be higher than Ottawa's.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. You you do not want to go into a scenario where either Ottawa or Montreal beat you in the in the lottery or, you know, God forbid Toronto falls and they end up in the in the draft lottery and and they end up with a with a top pick. Uh I think you have to make sure you're the highest drafting team in the Atlantic uh just to make sure your rebuild gets off to the right start.
0: I know this is insane given uh the last moment that we saw the Toronto Maple Leafs, but I actually still think they're going to make the playoffs, and I got a weird, weird feeling they're going to win the first round. I
1: don't know, Max. It looks like uh, it's going to be Boston, and Boston did some great work at the deadline too, getting Andre Case, although the Danton and uh, Heinen deal was very, very interesting and, and very surprising. I was a little uh surprised to see them move him in, in that kind of deal, um but all that being said, I mean Boston did really good work and I don't know that Toronto really did much of anything to make themselves better at this year's deadline. So they're they weren't able to to move Tyson Berry. They weren't able to to really do much. Their big move on the on the day ends up being uh just participating in the in the Robin Leonard deal and then going back a, a few days, being able to get uh, Jack Campbell and Kyle Clifford, who I, again, I don't think are gonna be massive difference makers for them. Uh, and so you have to hope that Dennis Mulgan, another guy they acquired in a swap with Florida, is, is enough to make a difference for them. But a lot of teams in the Atlantic and a lot of teams in the Metro got much, much better. Uh, so Toronto's gonna have to make sure they can stave off Florida here.
0: No, I know. It's not rooted in anything logical. It's just a weird gut feeling that I have basically since they lost to the Zamboni driver, which, let me just, Rewind they lost to a Zamboni driver.
1: We we have to restate that. Not only a Zamboni driver, a forty two year old Zamboni driver, and not only a forty two year old Zamboni driver, a forty two year old kidney transplant recipient Zamboni driver. Uh we we have to say that out loud. I mean, the guy went half the game. Uh he went <laughs> half the game. He faced 10 shots. And and somehow you didn't beat him. Yes, Carolina was up, I think, 3-1 at the time of that goalie swap, but there's absolutely no excuse for losing to a Zamboni driver, uh a 42-year-old Zamboni driver. I I, I just have to say
0: that. One of the coolest sports moments I've ever seen. I, it, absolutely incredible.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, just absolutely phenomenal. Great story. Great for him. Great for the Canes, who uh are actually bringing Dave Ayers down uh, for the Tuesday night game to actually sound the siren in the building, which is kind of a great honor that the the canes like to do multiple times uh during the game we will have someone who sign uh if you haven't ever been to a hurricanes game they'll they have a loud hurricane warning siren in the arena that someone will sound to start the game and then before each of the subsequent periods and so they're I think they're believe bringing airs down to do that for the start of the game, which is really exciting.
0: Yeah, uh, assuming we're both on the same page about the green deal, which is pretty much, you know, if, if that's what the, the price was, the Red Wings did well to get, you know, whatever they could out of, out of a guy who they were, you know, was going to be an free agent in just six weeks. Any deals that they didn't make today that you, I mean, obviously we don't know what the, what the offers would have been. Were you surprised anyone didn't move? You know, the
1: interesting thing from Eisnerman's press conference was that nobody called for the goalies. Uh and I thought that was incredibly surprising. I mean, we just talked about Carolina having to go to emergency backup. It sounds like James Reimer is out for quite some time. Peter Morazic is is a neck injury, and so maybe he's back a little bit sooner, but I mean Carolina's a team that just had to call up both their AHL goalies. Jonathan Bernier was pretty cheap. He was three million for this year and three million for next year, and he had been one of the top five goalies. I was really surprised to to not see him uh move and I was also surprised that Colorado didn't didn't even uh give a call on Bernier either. I thought he would have been the prime trade target for a lot of teams looking for a goaltender, but instead you get Robin Leonard being the guy that moves, even though it sounds like he wanted to stay in Chicago and was willing to take a discount just to be able to stay put for a couple of years. Um, but he's the big name that ends up moving. So I think that was probably the biggest surprise for me is that really no one called for the goalies um, which if you know, you know, anything about the playoffs, if you run into that hot goalie, you know, you're, you're absolutely in trouble. And so it's, it was just very surprising that no one really entertained that.
0: I do think though that it, it would have been hard to imagine any team who did call being willing to give the kind of price that the Red Bings were ultimately going to have to ask for just because of the goalie situation there. And I mean, if we're seeing, like, if Robin Leonard is not getting a, a first round pick in the season he's had and the couple seasons he's had, Even though Bernier has term, I do have a hard time, uh, thinking that he was gonna get the same price as Robin Leonard ultimately got, which was a second rounder and a prospect, I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. Now, Leonard has a little bit more of a pedigree over the last couple of seasons than Bernier, but, you know, Bernier was, you know, cheaper, and, and he's a guy that you just have to think about. Uh, you know, looking at if you're going to be making, uh, moves playoff time and you need a goaltender. So I was just surprised more than anything. Obviously, I don't think the wings would have moved him. You know, like you said, Max, the price they would have had to ask for would have been astronomical. I mean, in this market, you would have been asking for a first, uh, potentially not even wanting to settle for a second, even though you and I both kind of said that'd be a dream return for the wings. I think. You know, he likely wouldn't have moved, but just surprising for Aserman to come out and say that no one even asked.
0: Yeah. No, it, it's fair. It's, it's true. And I, I, you know, I think, uh, I think that was one of the more interesting things he said as well, in addition to, uh, the fact that he wants to model, uh, be the New England Patriots model, ideally, making him the second GM in, in Detroit to feel that way.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll see here. But I mean, I think, Bernie was really the only logical guy that, that could have moved. I know you and I have tossed out Trevor Daly as a name, and there were kind of controversial, I guess, remarks earlier in the season about whether or not he he asked for a deal to the contender. I know that story kind of floated for a little while before it dissipated. But either way, I don't know that he was going to be able to be moved, and I don't know that there was much of a market for him uh, anyways. And so unfortunately, uh, you know, Daly's kind of stuck in Detroit to finish out his contract here.
0: I did find it interesting that Eric Gustafson, who I think is a pretty strong offensive defenseman, uh only got really kind of half a round better than, than the Mike Green return. Ultimately, with the condition on the green pick, that return could end up being identical for Eric Gustafson and Mike Green.
1: Yeah, I mean and Gustafson's a guy I think you and I talked about as being a guy the wings could target in the off season given that he's got reasonable impacts and, and if he's uh if he's available for detroit to to pursue he he would be a great guy to, to lock down for a couple of years but you know he's a he's a real solid defenseman and and i think the price that was paid for him was you know again a little bit steeper than i was expecting
0: yep yep absolutely any uh, any more trade deadline wrap-up we want to do before we get into the forward-looking side of all of this
1: no, I mean, this was honestly a very eventful trade deadline day. It was very miserable trying to keep up with this. Uh, I felt like every five minutes from like 9 a.m. to 2 p.m., there was a deal breaking. And so, uh, it was by far the most eventful day I can remember. And I'm glad that, uh, the NHL GM, GMs kind of just went for it.
0: I am surprised Colorado didn't do anything. That is the one, the one thing I'll add. That was a team I was expecting to be a lot more active than just Vladislav Nemestikov today.
1: Yeah, surprising. And again, they were a team that I really thought was going to go after a goaltender, but, you know, maybe, maybe, uh, the right market wasn't there, the right deal wasn't there. And, and if you look at Colorado, I mean, they're, they're still absolutely loaded. Um, you know, they should be heavily favored in, in most of their Western Conference matchups. Um, so, you know, we'll see. They they may have felt that they didn't need to make a move and they just needed to wait on, you know, Miko Rantanen coming back, Nazem Kadri coming back, waiting on Grubauer to come back. Uh cuz they're missing, you know, almost 20 million dollars, uh 22 million dollars in, in in cap hit guys uh right now on IR. So, uh if they're able to just get those guys back, it'll be the old Ken Holland special that getting this guy back off of IR is our trade deadline move.
0: Yep. Yep all right so let's look ahead to the draft now the red wings suddenly have uh another you know big roster of, of picks heading into that draft they've got their own pick in round one that'll be somewhere between one through four they'll have the first pick in in round two which i i want to talk about a little bit more in depth soon and then there's kind of the, the the capitals pick we expect to be in the last you know five to eight picks there the wild card oilers pick in round two uh that could really be anywhere at this point uh i mean within reason it's, it's either going to be the mid round or. A late round uh their own pick in round three again first pick around three the Sharks pick will be probably in the top uh top seven or eight of that round what intrigues you most about the stable of picks the Red Wings now have heading into this draft
1: you know like you said so they've got six picks in the first three rounds uh that puts them you know in the territory of if they want to try and jump up in into the first round I think they could uh, one idea I floated when, uh, when I was on the radio today with, uh, Jim Costa and the guys over there in Grand Rapids was, you know, if you've, if for whatever reason Askarov starts to drop and he starts sliding into the late teens or into the early twenties, does Detroit decide to use a couple of those second rounders to move up and, and potentially grab a goaltender of the future in Askarov? I certainly don't expect him to slide. Uh But, if you look back you know last year, what Florida was able to do when they had their second first round pick was be able to take Spencer Knight. I certainly don't think you could expend uh your only first round pick if you only have one on a goaltender um but if 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 he's a guy that slides, maybe you consider doing that or if there's a guy that's that's high on their board that starts moving into the low twenties and and uh, you know potentially a guy like uh, a Lucas Reichel or a JJ Paterka, two guys over in Germany right now, are having outstanding seasons, and and those guys are maybe sliding into the late twenties, and it doesn't cost you a whole lot to move up. Maybe maybe those are the right guys to jump in. But I think the first thing that really offers is either one, you have the ability to move up if you want to, and if there's a guy you like. But the second piece that I think is important to note is if you look at all the different kind of scouts and mock draft boards and whatnot out there, by my last count, there were 51 different players that had been given a first-round grade. And so you're potentially talking about the Wings being able to select three of those players. I'm assuming the Washington pick is not going to be in the top 51 I'm also going to assume the Edmonton pick is going to be in the top 51. Um, so you're potentially saying I could come away with three of the top 51 players. And if I'm saying that there's 51 guys that conceivably have a first-round uh, grade, if you will, by somebody, then, then potentially you're walking away with three great talents.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I'd add the other thing it offers the ability to do is trade back even more. Uh, I mean if you're talking about ways to accumulate picks – uh, that's certainly one of them, is, is it if you're on the draft floor and you're able to, you know, let's say you, you're at that pick at, you know, what, let's say what, let's do there's a 48, 49, 50, and someone wants to move up and you can go back to, I don't know, 56, 57 and pick up a third rounder. Uh, that's another way to just add kicks at the can here. I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's the point of the draft where you're gonna be real confident in any one player anyways. Uh, cause if you were, you already, you've had a couple chances to take them. So it's another opportunity to pick up more kicks at the can and I think, uh, that's only a good thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I completely agree here. I think, uh, you know, you have a lot of opportunities and I think this is really setting the wings up to be similar to, uh, the 2017 draft where they had 11 picks in the draft and they, they had several picks. I believe it was seven in the first 100. Uh, they're gonna have six in the first 100 this year. This is another huge, huge moment for the Red Wings rebuild. Uh if you look back on the twenty seventeen draft and hindsight is, is twenty twenty, that was a big miss for the Red Wings. They're they're unlikely to come away with more than just two, maybe two, three players max that are gonna end up making the NHL and, and unlikely that any of them turns into an elite talent. Uh and so I think this is a this is a huge landmark and a huge um, turning point for the Red Wings rebuild. They have to knock this out of the park they cannot afford to make a mistake here
0: so the pick i really want to ask you about is one that they did not acquire today it is the first pick of the second round which by now i think we're safe in assuming that they will have uh to me, that's a really interesting pick because it's the pick you have the longest amount of time to make other than whoever really has first overall or to some degree second overall. Uh, but, you know, in general, those are kind of more gimme picks. The The first pick of the second round, you got all night to think about. And I wonder, is that a good thing because it's more time to check all your boxes or is it ripe for overthinking and getting away from your list uh, with all that time for discussion?
1: Yeah, I mean it's it, it's a great point to, to bring up, and I I think it's one that there it's kind of two sides to the coin. I think number one, you certainly have time to think about it, but two, you also have time to move it. I think if there's another team that's really aggressive in in wanting a player, um, you know, you saw last year at at the uh, start of the second round, you had a team like Philadelphia uh, end up jumping in front of Detroit to go grab Bobby Brink because they saw him uh, available at 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 33 I believe or 34 Uh, I can't remember the exact number uh, off the top of my head and so they they wanted to jump in and and go pick him right ahead of Detroit because he was a guy high on their board so I think one it offers you time to shop that field offers and see if you're able to move back a couple of slots given that you're still likely to be picking from an excellent crop and maybe you can add another pick in the third or fourth round from there but two yeah you have to consider the other side that do you end up overthinking it and and uh not necessarily making the best pick for the for the team here,
0: yep, I think it's a great point and i'm I'm very curious to see which direction it goes i mean, I think it'll certainly for our purposes, yours and mine uh be pretty interesting because we'll get to talk a whole night about this pick that uh you know by that point in the draft it, it's to the point where not everyone knows a whole lot about all the players, so I'm sure we'll get a lot of uh a lot of mileage out of your analysis of 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 the draft class uh especially so i'm particularly interested in that pick. To me it's one of the the things that uh I'm now looking ahead to the most. Is there anything else from today that you want to talk about before we get into the listener questions?
1: No, I think we've really hit most of it. I think what I would really under, uh, kind of say again just for uh this purpose is that this year's draft and this year's off-season are going to be are really going to set the stage for if Eiserman can stick to this 3 to 4 year plan, I think You saw a lot of really good things from him today and he made moves that are going to make this team better that align with that timeline. He seems very committed to that, uh, that path forward. Um, with that being said, this, you cannot have any misses, uh, on draft night, particularly in your first kind of three picks or so. And then beyond that, you're going to need to make sure that uh you you hit the right free agents and you hit the right restricted free agent contracts um because this is really going to set the stage for where Detroit can go
0: Before I move on, I want to take a minute to tell you more about the great things going on at The Athletic. The Athletic is home to 400 of the best sports writers out there, covering every major team and every major league in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. My personal favorite is our prospects writer, Corey Promman. I'm sure you guys are very familiar with Corey's work, but he's extremely knowledgeable. He's experienced. He's he's at games. He's constantly watching film. Uh, I don't know anyone who puts in as much time as Corey when it comes to analyzing prospects. Red Wings fans should be very familiar with his work right now going through this rebound uh rebuild but uh certainly you know he he's one of the very best reasons to subscribe to the athletic simply put we've got the best sports newsroom on the planet but you don't have to take my word for it you can see for yourself by signing up for a free trial head to theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast to save 40 percent on an annual subscription that works out to three dollars a month for total access for some of the best sports coverage in the world what are you waiting for that's theathletic.com slash wings for breakfast to save 40%. Alright, to the questions. Beer league chump says, talk about, and I hate a talk about question, talk about how Sam Gagne is a useful right-handed power play piece and will help fix the Ebbing's power play issues. Steve Eiserman actually mentioned that today. He, he's excited to get Gagne in the lineup for that exact reason because Luke Lindenning is their only right-shot forward. So, uh, yeah, I do think that will matter quite a bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, you and I have talked about this at length. I think I've said this multiple times. One of the biggest issues with the Detroit power play right now is simply a lack of handedness. Uh, you have so many left-shot guys that by nature of the way the wings set up in this 1-3-1 power play, you're actually eliminating passing angles simply by just being a left-handed shot. So being a right-handed shot, uh, if the wings are able to put them on the opposite side from a guy like Anthony Mantha, you now have angles and passing lanes for, um, you know, for the Wings to be able to set up a lot of those cross scene passes, those slot passes, and the, a lot of the types of passes that really make the team successful. So I think overall, adding Sam Gagne is going to be a big help uh, for the Red Wings on the power play. I think he's going to be a very uh useful player there. He's, again, a guy that if the wings end up needing some depth moving forward, I can't imagine that he's an overly expensive forward uh, to take forward another year. His contract is up at the end of the season. I suspect you could, uh, you know, depending on how he performs and, and, and what his desires are, if he decides that he wants to to stick around uh, for another year, I mean, you're likely able to get that done at, at maybe two million or or you know two and a half million for a season or two.
0: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Ruth asks what the uh, lineups will look like. I, I think it's probably fair to say we kind of got a glimpse of it the other night when they were scratched from the lineup. I would assume that looks basically identical.
1: Yeah, I would imagine it's it's very much the same. And then obviously once Philip Zedina is healthy, you know he'll he'll get his way back into the the lineup and and be able to push some of those guys down. I suspect you know it would be interesting to see where Gagne uh, slots in. Um, he will not you know, be ready. May,
0: he won't be ready. Nope, they're having visa issues with uh well not issues, like they're gonna it's just gonna take a second for their there to get the visa situations resolved for both him and Timashov. So I would say both of those uh closer to this weekend than to, uh Tuesday night.
1: All right, fair enough. So then yeah, Tuesday night's gonna be looking very much similar to what you just saw, and and unfortunately that wasn't a super pretty uh performance.
0: Nope, no, it was not. Jared Mello asked what would be a realistic outlook for Timashov? Would he be a realistic piece going forward in the bottom six? You know, Timishoff's a guy
1: that a lot of people were very, very excited about him in Toronto, just from, again, following certain Leafs fans. Uh, he was a guy that they had really, really high hopes for. He seemed to have a really strong season in the AHL last year with the Toronto Marlies, And so being able to come up into Toronto this season, I think there was a lot of hope that he would be able to kind of take one of those spots uh, in the bottom six and really provide some scoring depth for the Leafs. Unfortunately, that really hasn't happened, and I think a large part of that is due to him just not getting a lot of ice time. The guy was getting maybe, you know, 9, 10 minutes of ice time a night, but he very clearly has uh, the ability to score. He was better than, you know, a half point per game in the AHL last season. Uh, he's really been at about half point per game for his AHL career over the last three years. So I think for Detroit, he's a guy who could potentially fit in that middle six um, at least in the short term period and and uh, you know until b- he'll basically be a part of that bridge for the next three to four years. as far as whether or not he's a part of the the long term plan you know beyond the three to four year rebuild piece that i'm I'm less sure of. I think uh, one of the key aspects to a successful rebuild is you don't commit term to players that are not elite. And so Timisoft certainly does not have an elite pedigree in him. And so that's why I think he'll be very serviceable for at least the next couple of years. If the wings choose to keep him, he'll likely be cheap, but I don't know that beyond the next three to four years that he's really a part of, uh, of the, of the big picture.
0: To me, I am treating him, uh, sort of like a stopgap, but in the way that you've, you know, you see with a lot of teams where, you know, if you get a hundred games out of a guy, you got on waivers. That's a great, a great uh, pickup by a GM.
1: Yeah, I mean, exactly. If you're able to snag these guys on waivers, it's it's you know potentially a uh, found gold for you. So you know it'll be really exciting. And then if you get a couple years out of them, that's that. Hey, all the all the better, right?
0: Sometimes you end up trading them for Robbie Fabry.
1: Very true. Work your way up to the uh, telescope for the office reference there.
0: That's right. Uh, all right, let's see. One, you know, one of the common questions, I'm not going to attribute this to any necessarily one person, but one of the common ones was just kind of assessing, I think people who maybe felt like the Red Wings should have gotten a first round pick. How, how would you kind of address those people who are concerned that Detroit, uh, you know, t- took a couple of seconds instead of a first? Uh, I, I mean, I'm just going to come out and say, first of all, I don't think that it's a choice they would have made if they had another option, but uh, should they have just hung on to them in the face of the current market?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's certainly a great question. Um, I think what I will first point people back to is a lot of these draft pick value curves that you've seen circling around. There's been curves made by Michael Shuckers. There's been, uh you know, curves made by Stephen Birch. And I think what a lot of people see in those curves is within the first round, there is a very, very steep drop off in value. But as you start to approach the, you know, the end of the first round into the early second round, the difference in value from pick to pick drops off dramatically. And so I actually attempted to rework this uh, using goals above replacement from the evolving hockey model. And what, um, you know, what I kind of found is, again, a very similar valuation where as you're getting into the end of the first the the curve kind of slows down in terms of how quickly it's decelerating and so what i'd say to that is you know a, a first round pick that's in the late 20s is not substantially more valuable than the than a pick really in the mid 30s to to early 40s based on how teams are currently drafting and based on how successful teams are at identifying the best players. Now what we do ultimately know is teams are not very good at identifying the best players as the draft carries on. That's why you find these seventh round gems, these sixth round gems. That's how you end up with Pavel Datsuk and Henrik Zetterberg for, for 15 years. Cause those guys are in the sixth and seventh round. While those numbers, while the number of players in that kind of type, in that kind of mold is shrinking, we still know teams are very far away from an optimal drafting curve. And so, again, if everything was going optimally, I think what you would say is that, yes, the first round pick is so much more valuable. But based on how we're drafting right now, you're still getting great value from these second round picks. Um, and it's not far off from what a low first round pick would be.
0: Jack Pfeiffer asks: uh, Are there any draft eligible players you'd consider packaging two of the, the Red Wings' seconds to trade up for? Should they start to fall uh, late in the first round? I, I mean, I assume, like, yeah, there are. Can we give? uh Can we give some names here?
1: Yeah, we could certainly give some names. I mean, I, I already listed a couple in, in the German guys, right? Um, in JJ Paterka and Lucas Reichel. I think those are two guys that are excellent players. They're potentially um you know first round talents who by most mocks seem to be sitting somewhere in the low 20s to uh you know early 30s. I think if those guys are sliding and they're and they're somewhere around where the wings are going to be picking and they want to jump up a couple of spots to make sure they they land one of them, I'd certainly be all over uh Landing either one of those guys, I think Reichel, in my opinion, is is slightly better um, than than Paterka, but either player I think is an outstanding player to to go with. Uh, I think beyond that, a couple of guys that. Uh, I would also look at is Noel Gundler, who's in the Swedish, uh, Hockey League right now, playing in the, uh, the SHL. He's fought, he's a little bit under the radar relative to Lucas Raymond and Alexander Holtz, but he's had an outstanding season. I think he's an excellent talent. He's a guy that I would certainly, uh, you know, look at jumping on if he's slipping into the 20s. And then the other guy that I'd, I'd kind of point out is Ian Mysik, who just came in from the Czech League over to, um, you know the, to North America and playing in the OHL and he's actually having an outstanding season right now in the OHL he just had a five point first period a few games back um, since coming over he's got 21 points in 17 games again most people still have him in the early 20s but if he continues to slide then then he's a guy that I would certainly jump all over
0: what about your boy Gunner?
1: I already said Gunler, you're not paying attention
0: I'm not paying attention to this. I was actually looking up Bob McKenzie's, uh, draft rankings because he, he pulls the scouts. And so I think that's usually a good way to kind of get a feel for where guys, uh, are tiering. One of the names that interests me very much is, uh, Hel, I don't know how to pronounce it. Helga Granz. You know anything about him? The Swedish yeah. defenseman?
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of people have him all over the place. He's a, he's a real solid defenseman. He's played really well. He's playing in the, in the, um, Swedish, uh, top junior league, the super elite league. He's also gotten some run time in the SHL. He's gotten 17 games there. And so we know that when draft eligible defensemen actually make it into the SHL, that's a pretty good surrogate for them actually making the NHL uh, down the road and actually being successful players. I kind of posted um, my individual study on that last July, uh, looking at the SHL defensemen and the, the guys that were draft eligible in the SHL, um, as defensemen, were guys that were able to be studs in the NHL down the road. So he's certainly a guy that I would look at. I think most people have him late teens, uh early 20s in the mock drafts, but obviously Bob McKenzie's tends to line uh, align most closely with what actually happens on draft night. So continue to tune into to Bob McKenzie's rankings because there was a lot of guys on that rankings list that you're going, huh, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. One guy in particular is Jan Mysik that I was just talking about. He was – uh, far lower on Bob McKenzie's list, uh, relative to where most people have him in mock drafts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Gran's still only 17, will turn 18 until May, which I think, uh, especially when you're talking about how quickly he's ascended, uh, that'll catch your attention in a hurry.
1: For sure. He's a guy that I, I think could be a potential difference maker. So he's, he's one to, to keep an eye on.
0: Alright. Uh, anything else before we let everybody go?
1: No, I mean, happy trade deadline season. One one big marker down. Now the next thing is the draft lottery, so we will prepare accordingly.
0: Absolutely, we will. Thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for being patient with us, getting this episode out. I'm going to go take my tie off.